Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Change the Angle, Anne and I are joined by Calvin Beyer, Assistant Director of Innovation and Change Integration at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about how patience and empathy are key to managing change. We're here today with Calvin Beyer, who's the Assistant Director of Innovation and Change Integration here at Fordham. And he is our number one co-teacher, chief co-facilitator of all the faculty development stuff in the pandemic times. So the first conversation you and I ever had on the phone was about a new payroll system, a new system, expense report system at Fordham. Mm -hmm. And you had been told to call me to kind of talk about how to roll this out to faculty. So I understand that kind of pre-COVID, your job was about helping faculty, helping Fordham people get on board with new technologies. Is that a fairly okay description? And how has that changed since COVID? I think that's a 100% accurate description. And I think that makes it really easy for people to understand because the title, as you said, can be sometimes words that people go, what does that mean? But really when you distill it, it's, I help make change a little less scary. So whenever the university, specifically from a technology standpoint, has acquired some new service, I need to figure out the ways that people are going to make that transition from what they were currently doing to what they're going to do now with this new technology. And hopefully they see the benefits, the innovations through the reason why we had acquired that particular software or service. So, and that's what I continue to do today. Um, through the advent of the pandemic, my job simply was augmented to include the roles in which I was able to gain the benefit of uh, working with you and Steve through uh, assisting the faculty as they made the transition through and continuing to make transitions through an ever-changing environment because of the uh, changes put upon us by the pandemic. So, and that has been part of, or one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in in my uh, career here at Fordham and getting to work with faculty such as yourselves and other faculty through the workshops you've hosted. So was that a new experience for you, Calvin, working directly with faculty at at Fordham during this recent period or Historically, have you not done that? Because you're really good at it. So I'm just wondering. I, there, there would be um, intermittent contact points with faculty, more like the instance that Anne had mentioned, which was the kind of the uh, seminal contact for us through the concur expense reimbursement system. But this was the first time where there was a concerted effort to really point my energies towards uh, serving the faculty over a prolonged period of time. So you've been doing a ton of faculty development work with us, facilitating workshops on acculturating faculty to Panopto. What's Panopto? The easiest way to define Panopto would be it's a cloud-based service that allows and empowers the faculty to have a centralized point of creating, editing, and sharing recordings, not just video, but also audio too. That was a a solution the university didn't really have before Panopto. We had very disparate uh, solutions each department or collection of departments had in terms of how they would create, edit, and share videos. But now we have a centralized way of of doing that, which I think has been uh, a hugely beneficial 
uh, resource for our faculty and our staff too, because they obviously have a lot of needs when it comes to sharing information with, the, with regards to onboarding or any kind of new services that people might need to use. Yeah, I think the captioning too has been a real issue for us institutionally, capturing audio content and, and making those captions you know, searchable has been a real great benefit to the Panopto acquisition. Uh, things move fast in a pandemic. So it's easy to kind of misremember when certain things yeah, might have happened in an order. But yeah. in that time of March and April and May, those kinds of things were really kind of blending together because because we've integrated Zoom and Panopto. In many instances, people are using them very much hand in hand. Um, so we, we kind of met right at that crossroads uh, at the start of the pandemic. I mean, I think from my perspective, it was um, an opportunity for, I think it, 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 it served a couple of purposes, obviously the instructional purpose, but really reassuring faculty and instructors that there were people behind them that had a good knowledge base and were eager to share and support them in their work because it was really a time of great instability and and Calvin if you don't mind my saying you have like a very gentle and patient way so I think that that oh, was really reassuring to them um, and then also to use the tools to explain the tools right explaining zoom in zoom making Panopto videos available in Panopto so they were able to exp experience those tools from the learner perspective, I think really, really helped in bringing everyone on board. Because now I think people just, you know, use them without intuitively, without even thinking about it. I'm wondering from your perspective as someone who has as an expertise, like helping people deal with change, if you can talk about, I mean, I don't even know because we're still in this, but do you have any like outside perspective on like how the process of acculturating us to doing this has gone like how would you describe getting people into teaching in this largely remote or flexible hybrid mode i think that's a great question um in terms of larger background and what may have influenced the approach that i take with regards to helping people kind of navigate change as you said we're continuing to navigate it um, my background is largely influenced by also a Jesuit background. Obviously, I went to Fordham Prep for high school, and obviously, I came here to Fordham, but I also got my master's here at Fordham. So, uh, the Jesuit um, ethos and approach and perspective uh, to learning is something that I'm very familiar with, and I hope that I put into practice in, in a way uh, that is helpful. Um, but I'm also a practicing Buddhist, uh, and I've been practicing Buddhism for since 2003. Um, and I think that may well so have some influence in terms of the way that I generally try to approach people in terms of seeing everyone having potential um, and kind of helping them see that. And so much of everything that you do is, is based on confidence. You know, even if you do something wrong, if you do it with confidence, you'll be able to kind of pick yourself back up and learn and do it better the next time. So case in point, and what you were able to do with posting something in Blackboard and, and linking Zoom and then putting, you know, making that also happen in Discord, but doing that without second guessing yourself and thinking that you need help, but doing it confidently. And if you make a mistake, you know what, I can do it again. Like that is, that's where we want to get to. We want to get to that space. So it's about trying to first build up people's confidence, let them be, you know, 
okay with making mistakes because that's where the gentleness comes in. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to say you did anything wrong because we're all learning. We're all trying to adapt so that eventually, yes, the destination is we can get you to a place where you're going to do something with confidence. Even if you do it wrong, I want you to do it confidently. So it's interesting. You, I mean, can you, can you say a little bit more about how Buddhism helps you think that, think that through or approach that or what are the principles or maybe the Jesuit piece you want to talk about? Because I think it's interesting to think about, we think about these, these are ancient traditions, right? That we mm -hmm. don't necessarily think about as helping us uh, look forward into an uncertain future or really have any connection to technology. So, you know, I think you're, you're right. And in some ways, I don't know if I've ever really sat and thought about the intersection between the Jesuit kind of upbringing, for lack of a better phrase. Like you said, so much of my early um, academic career was shaped in a, in a Jesuit cru crucible, as it were, but also obviously in later years, my experience with Buddhism. Um, you know, for the Jesuit part, I think it really boils down to the magis concept, right? Like doing more, you know, and the idea that you have certain, or else use the first person, I have certain natural uh, gifts and talents, but also I have been afforded the opportunity to be instructed and guided by various people through my academic career. The question then I feel like a Jesuit education at its most core is asking everybody, well, is okay, what are you going to do with both of those natural talents that you have and the nurtured skills that have been given to you? How are you going to use those to make yourself better? How are you gonna use that to make other people's lives better. So that's kind of the general frame that I use when I get that email from somebody who's having a particular issue. It's like, okay, well, if we strip everything away, forget the technology, forget the problem at the core, what's the emotion? Is that person, what's, is, it, is, is there anxiety? Is there, is there shame? Is, is there, you know, some kind of lack of, of confidence? Like let's, let's try to treat that first. And that, this kind of gets pivots into the Buddhist uh, concept or upbringing that I have, where it's like, you have to sometimes get to the idea of uh, cause and effect, which is in the Buddhism that I practice, that's the really central idea, is that the universe is all based on the idea of causality. That if you could understand how everything is connected through cause and effect, you would be enlightened. And that's what we're always trying to do as we're, as we're chanting and practicing in Buddhism is trying to see the world through that causality frame. Um, so I can take that and apply that to everything that I'm doing. So, okay, let's, let's forget the effects, get past the effects. Let's get to the cause. And if I can, if I can understand the cause, I may not be able to fix the cause, but I, may, I can understand the cause. That's going to help me and figure out how I can help you when you're helping people make a change, that's a moment of tremendous vulnerability for people, right? Even if it's just a new way to submit your expense reports, right? I mean, there's a lot of stress involved with going through a process, right? And it's like, oh, you know, giving a lecture is stressful enough. Now I have to give a lecture over Zoom, or now I have to pre-record my lecture and upload it onto Blackboard, right? It's really interesting to think about this idea of cause and effect when probably 95% of the time when you're interacting with a, a colleague, 
they feel vulnerable or stressed out, right? Because you're proposing to them, there's a way you've always done this. Now we're doing it this new way. Yeah, I think the hardest thing is to get people to understand that what you learned and, and the procedures from the old way, it's not like that doesn't count. Mm -hmm. you, you, we're not telling you that everything you've done before doesn't matter anymore. So the idea is to like, okay, what can we take from what you used to do, right, into what we need to do now? And to focus right. on, we're really just making procedural changes, right? Um, and here I'm thinking more in, in the teaching and learning context, Calvin, that you've been working with us in lately, that it's reassuring people that, you know, you're, that there are, there are universal effective practices that apply regardless of the context and modality of teaching. So it's very helpful to clarify what those are and to make sure that they're grounded firmly, that you understand why you're doing what you're doing. Because mm -hmm. if they, I feel, I feel like if, in my experience anyway, if, if we take a tool-based approach, then you're not really, your decision-making is not informed, right? And so I think why these two big efforts that we mutually embarked upon, Zoom and Panopto, because the reasons were so clear and imperative, mm -hmm. um, which is different than someone sort of volunteering to interrogate their practice and integrate a tool. You've done that curating for them, you know? And, and I think that that gives people kind of a head start. They understand the why. And I think that's really important for people to understand. So if you make good choices around the, the kind of solutions you're providing, I, I feel like there's less resistance. Oh, this does this one thing really, really well. You mm -hmm. thing done. This is how you use this tool to do that thing. Right, right. Because I think you're bringing, you have to build on what you're talking about because it really gets to the core of the practice of change management, which is building bridges. Like taking what you were currently doing and understanding and building bridges to the things and ways you'll do it with whatever new service. Like make those points of transition so they can mentally and emotionally walk over. Because many times that's the reason why people will resist a change it's because they were never provided those pathways by whoever was shepherding that transition to walk over. They feel like they have to make a leap and leaps are scary. So, so that's, that's my job, build those bridges. That's great. So this is, this has been a little bit abstract. And so I'm gonna ask you to, if you can think of a story or tell us a story or two about change, right? So I'm wondering if you could share maybe something about like when a vendor comes to you and says, we have this great new tool and we mm -hmm. really think people are gonna be excited about it. Can you think of times when you've said, you know, this isn't for us or yeah, that I can really see us getting on board with it. How do you make those decisions? What are those conversations like in your group, right? Because a lot of times when, by the time I'm talking to you, you know, four different options have been um, vetted and you're presenting us with the one that you've decided is the best. So how does that process behind the scenes work? Well, to be perfectly transparent, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. Many times I have those decisions and conversations and negotiations happen at a level and a, and a pay scale that is above mine. 
Many times I'm brought in at a stage where we've identified the ideal um, service provider or vendor for a particular thing. And now it's a question of, okay, how do we build bridges for that particular service that we've already decided upon? But that's still a pretty interesting negotiation to, once again, we have to figure out, almost kind of get parachuted into departments to go, okay, I need to know your work practice as well as you do, map that out, which sometimes they've never done before. I've had situations many times where I've gone into departments. We just did this recently with the new applicant tracking system we're we're rolling out. Um, I'll sit down with the department and say, okay, uh, tell me how you uh, post an open position. And they talk it through and I'm literally on a whiteboard drawing it out. I digitize that, send it to them and they go, oh my, that's what we do? Huh. Because it, it was always conceptualized and just kind of happened in paper and interoffice envelopes, but no one had ever tried to put it on one sheet of digital paper and look at it and go, that's what we do. And now you can see, oh, those were all the points where things kind of would fall between the crack. This person's signature, who was checking to make sure that was actually the right one? Like, okay, now we see the problems. And then it makes the job easier for us to kind of, I hate to use the word, make the sale, but really kind of. Uh, get people to understand this is the reason why we acquired this service because it's going to treat or ameliorate all of these situations and issues that you were experiencing and had made uh, exceptions for and workarounds for up to this point. So it's it's that that experience, that engagement that can be really fun. That's where you get to build relationships with people throughout the university. I mean, I've gotten to work with people all over the place, uh, which has been you know, a lot of a lot of fun because you end up getting to learn how the university works from all the different points of view. That's so, so interesting because it, it echoes what you said about cause and effect earlier, right? Getting someone to describe a process and the fissures in the process, the cracks where things fall apart, right? I can see that that interest in cause and effect has a real practical application, right? Because you can make a flow chart and say, look at, there's a box here that doesn't lead anywhere else. And there's a bunch of stuff in that box that's just stuck in an inner office envelope somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, Calvin, when you're talking, I'm wondering if if there are things about the Fordham culture, the fact that it's very relationship based that inhibit its ability to change like dynamically and efficiently. I think that certainly can be true in many respects. I think people have sometimes described Fordham as being a large tanker ship that takes a very long time to change its direction. Um, but that being said, I think that there's also, there's like obviously many sides to a coin. And to your point, the relationship nature and orientation of Fordham can actually be also really beneficial uh, when it comes to things like that, like building those relationships with folks in administration or human resources, you know, going through issues and and, uh, challenges, it makes it so that when you really have to get someone to go the extra mile for you, they're willing to do that because you've built that relationship and you're leveraging a larger kind of familial kind of sense ability that the university has that people will just sometimes just, they'll just find it, they'll find the time, they'll find the way because because they know you, because you're Steve because you're Ann, because you're Calvin. 
not because your IT, your provost, your arts and sciences, like they know who you are, not what you represent, which I think that's what actually makes the university a really kind of beautiful place to work. One of the best, um, best guidances I ever got, and this is yet another influence that I have in terms of how I approach things. Uh, I practiced Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for eight years. Um, and there would be many times I would be on the mat, struggling to try and do some certain move. And the instructor would come over and he'd say, Calvin, what are you doing? Like, oh, I can't get this, this arm bar. It just won't work. And he's like, stop, move back, change the angle. And sure enough, he's right. I just changed the angle of my hips a little bit. And all of a sudden, it's like a key in a lock. It just turns immediately. And that guidance I use everywhere not just on the Brazilian jiu-jitsu mat. Like if I'm struggling with something or if I'm trying to help someone get through something, my, my default uh, advice or guidance them is like, stop, just change the angle. Change how you're looking at it, change how you're coming at this. And by and large, most times it will just work. What's been the most challenging uh, change for you to implement since you've been here? The most challenging change that we've had to implement. That's interesting. Cause like each one of the changes, like they, they all had their own unique elements to them. Uh, I mean, concur was challenging in, in its own ways and it, it might top the list only because it was, you know, to some of the points that you brought up earlier Anne, about the anxiety that can get um, unearthed when people make changes, particularly when there's, money and finances involved. Um, I think that was that was something that we had, I think initially thought, oh, we'll be done with this in six months. But then as we started to kind of really unpeel the layers and start to kind of understand, you know, and I'll, I'll continue on that layer um, metaphor because there's a concept in change management called the, the change onion. Mm -hmm. That there are layers of change that, a person needs to think about and consider when they're approaching somebody about change. There's everything from, do you not like this change? Do you not like what this change represents? Do you not like the department that I represent? Do you not like me? I need to consider all of those different types of changes because it will inform how I'm going to approach things. If I can realize, okay, well, you just, you have some kind of beef with me, then I'll be putting up the, the change needs to go aside. We need to figure out what's going on here. Maybe I need to be removed from this equation and we need to have somebody else guiding this change if it's something personal. And as you go up the layer, you start changing the approaches. I feel like many times changes can sometimes struggle because that first determination was never made. And people just keep going forward, trying to address a change or a resistance to a change that isn't really there. Like once again, they haven't gotten to the cause. They kept treating something else instead of that, that root. What I have found, and I've been I guess, doing change management as a, as a practice for almost four years now, what I have found really remarkable is the power of acknowledgement. Like mm. When I can take the time and energy to genuinely acknowledge the anxiety and other emotions that a person is going through as they're shedding their skin 
and being vulnerable to then go through this change. It goes so far in terms of getting that person to kind of go, okay, like you, you see me, you see that this is hard and you're not just thinking, oh, I should just get it. I've, I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a video. I'm going to give you a, a document. Now I'm just going to get it. You're seeing that this is hard. And then that acknowledgement, I feel kind of helps that person start to lean in a little bit and go, okay, like, let me, let me see what this is. So that, but that's that first approach, that first step that I feel like as a change manager, change agent, I need to be able to do. I need to be able to genuinely and authentically acknowledge the feelings that people are having about a change. Because again, like that to me is the core. That is the cause that I need to figure out, understand and figure out how to best support the feelings. Is there a teacher that you've had whose lessons you still think about? I would say the most important learning facilitator in my life is my mother. And my mother also happens to have been a teacher for 20 plus years in the New York, New York City school system, in the Bronx actually, primarily teaching first and second grade at PS83. Um, but the reason I say learning facilitator is you know, a little background on me. My father passed away when I was 11 years old. Uh, he was wow. a uh, Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Army, uh, died from uh, exposure from Agent Orange and Napalm from tours in Vietnam. Uh, so I spent the, you know, the bulk of my formative, you know, male years trying to figure out how do I become a man, you know, in the dark. I didn't have the person in the household who I would be able to model or choose to model opposite. Um, and in my mother, you know, to her credit, and years later, she, you know, revealed to me how terrified she was of trying to figure out how to raise a man all by herself an African-American man in America, no less. Um, she took it upon herself to really make sure I was put in as many environments as possible to be exposed to positive male role models. So she made sure the schools that I went to would have strong male and especially African-American male leaders there for me. She made sure I was in the Boy Scouts so that I would get be in that organization and structure to be around both just boys and peers, but also other men in those positions to give me options, to give me choices and once again, things to model or things to model against. Um, and that just continued on in life. And I think that that really instilled in me to look for those things myself once I was in a position to start choosing my environments, to start looking for places where I would be exposed to other people that I would want to, to model and learn off of. And I hope that I've been able to provide that at some point for others to be able to say, okay, I, how can I be a model for, for others in terms of when they're exposed to me? So, so to answer your question, my mother is the person who I would say has been the most influential learning facilitator. That's, that's great. And that's a great answer because it also gets at something that really interested me that you were saying before about helping people work their way through change. And I was struck when you described it, that you don't have a big investment in which change people pick. You don't have a big investment in how they do it. You want to build the bridge and help people cross it, 
but you don't ever describe yourself as fostering people to like you're gonna and then you're gonna choose the caesar salad with grilled chicken like that just doesn't seem to be where you're leading people right you're like i'm gonna help you make a decision about what you're gonna have for lunch but you're not saying and it's gonna be this 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 choice right and it seems like that was one of your mom's lessons was there are lots of ways to, in fact there are lots of ways to be a man and there are lots of ways to be a good man and there are lots of ways to be a good african-american man and you know you can then you can chart your own course according to these landmarks and some of the landmarks may become for you uh models to avoid as mm -hmm. well as models to move toward right and that's really cool because i think that's so that gives people so much liberty to to grow and change on their own well this was really fun thank Thanks, you so much calvin for... it was great Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.